The uh, scripture reading this morning is going to be from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of the Lord we're going to be considering this morning. May he add his blessing to it and revive our hearts with it. Amen. You may be seated. Lord, indeed, we need, we need thee every hour. <laughs> There's never a moment when we don't need Thee. Turn our eyes away from looking at vanity, Lord, and revive us in Your ways. We pray, Holy Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Today we're, uh, we're, we're picking back up, really, with where we left off last week and seeking to discern true revival. So today is discerning true revival part two. Uh, to be very uh, honest, and just straightforward with you, I've got so much material here um, that we may go another week uh, talking about revival. Um, it doesn't bother me in the slightest. Uh, I, this is a topic that I don't want to rush, and I don't want to feel the hurry of the seconds ticking on the clock, uh, disrupting um, anything, any, any of our focus on a topic so important as God reviving his church. Um, I, I do pray that you long for that. <laughs> I, I said that to the Sunday school class this morning. I pray, I hope that you long for God to quicken and strengthen and awaken his church. I, I feel so much that we're in a time of, we're, we're in a time of perfect opportunity for revival. Uh, the church is weak and the world is wretched. And, and that is a, that is a, a glorious opportunity there for God to magnify his saving power. So pray for that. So I don't know, I don't know if we're going to get through this. I'm going to do my best. But I have set a time in my own mind that I'm going to stop today. And uh, wherever we stop, if we don't stop at the end, then uh, we'll just pick back up there next week. All right, so... Last week, we began looking at the, the issue of revival, and the reason that we are looking into that issue is because of what has taken place in Wilmore, Kentucky at Asbury University. Has anyone here not heard about what has happened in Asbury? It's okay if you haven't. You don't need to feel ashamed. It's a couple people. So last week, we introduced what was going on in Asbury, um, the meetings officially were declared to be over 
uh, by February 24th, last Friday, not this past Friday, but the Friday before. And uh, the university itself says that the uh, outpouring meetings were over as of February 23rd. So uh, this, this reported revival has generated a lot of excitement among Christians and non-Christians as we consider and question whether or not there is indeed a supernatural work of the Spirit of God taking place among us. And what we're wanting to do as Christians and believers here in, at Oak Ridge Community Church in Stillwater, Minnesota, we are wanting to work through how we should be thinking about what has taken place. My argument last week was that we don't want to be reactionary in, in what we're seeking to do. And there are reasons why we don't want to be reactionary. We don't want to be all in for it, and we don't want to be all against it right off the bat. We want to be discerning. And as our text says for today, the first thing that we want to make sure that we're not doing is we're not quenching the spirit whenever we approach something like the Asbury Revival. So first of all, we want to approach this situation with an openness to the reality that this could, in fact, be a move of the Spirit of God. Verse 19 of 1 Thessalonians 5, it warns us, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Now, these exhortations meant something in their specific context that we don't have time to dive into right now. But the principle here is plain. Christians are not automatically to adopt a posture of antagonism against matters that may be the result of the Spirit's work among us. So if the Holy Spirit is doing something unusual and unique in our day, we do not want to be found guilty of despising what he's doing. And we don't want to be found guilty of quenching his work. That, that word for quenching there literally speaks of, of, of doing something that causes something else to cease. Right? So you are, you are approaching a matter in such a way that you are causing it to cease. Now that's really important to understand the connection between that exhortation and its role in relation to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moves sovereignly and mightily and powerfully when and where he chooses to move. There's no one who can make him do anything. And let me say it this way as well. There's no one who can make him not do anything either. <laughs> However, here we're clearly exhorted with the reality that we are capable of, of treating movements of the Spirit of God in such a way that it causes the Spirit to withdraw from us. It quenches that work and it ceases to happen. So we have to hold these things in balance. The, Lord is, 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 the Spirit of God is sovereign Lord in His church. He will do what He will do, and He will do it when He will do it. However, we must walk with care. We must tread with fear of the Lord as we approach things like revival. So this is a real danger, especially in more reformed circles where we hold to a more reformed doctrine we need to be very careful that we're not quenching a work of the Spirit of God. And then, at the same time, alongside that exhortation uh, of 1 John 4.1 that we looked at last week, we're not to approach a situation with an automatic posture of antagonism 
and doubt and speculation. However, at the same time, we are to approach something like revival um, with, with an attitude of seeking to test it, right? So we're not coming to revival with an uncritical approach to matters that are claiming to be from the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4.1, it says, we are not to believe every spirit as if it comes from God, but we are to test the spirits to find out whether they are from God. Now, we, we brought that principle out more broadly, and we applied it to the situation of the Asbury revival, and we're saying, okay, we don't want to be immediately, uh, we don't want to adopt a, a posture that immediately discredits the work of the Spirit of God that may be taking place there. However, at the same time, we don't want to be gullible. We don't, want to, we don't want to function with ignorance here. We want to be prudent. We want to be wise. We want to be discerning about what the Spirit of God is doing. That's actually, according to this text, how we can make sure that we are not quenching the Spirit. is by testing movements and, and claims that, that, that claim to come from the Spirit, by testing them to find out whether they are good. And if they are good, then we hold fast to them. If they are not good, then we throw them out. And that is how we honor and Honor the Spirit's work among us and do not quench his move and anything he might be doing. So we don't want to quench a good work that the Spirit may be doing among, among us. And part of making sure we don't do that is examining everything that claims to come from him and only holding to that which is good. Now that's what we're seeking to do in relation to what is being called the Asbury Revival. Last week, I went over some of the details relating to that event, and I'm not going to cover that again this morning. Uh, you can go listen to last week's sermon if you missed it and um, hear more of the details about what has gone on there. But as we begin to evaluate that revival and to test it to see if it is good and to see if it is something worth holding on to, there are a number of considerations that we want to keep in mind. And uh, last week we looked at two of them. And the, the first consideration that we ought to keep in mind as we are seeking to evaluate any claim that a revival is happening, the first consideration we ought to keep in mind is that the history of the church is a history of revivals. And we went through that uh, 2,000 years and beyond. We're, we're talking about, uh, at this point, at least 35 to 100 years, if not 4,000 years worth of God bringing revival into the lives of his people. And uh, God's people have known throughout our history uh, a rich, we have a rich history of true revival. So we should not immediately write off Asbury as something that could not possibly be from God. And then secondly, we also said last week that we should approach Asbury with a clear understanding of what revival is. Revival is not revivalism like that of Charles Finney. It is not mere emotionalism like much of what has been called revival in re recent decades is. Revival is actually a surprising supernatural work of the Spirit of God. It is a work that brings spiritual renewal to the Church of Christ. That is, revival is God moving with sovereign might to infuse fresh spiritual power into the life of his church. And just as a reminder, we read that quote from J.I. Packer last week that revival is God touching minds and hearts in an arresting, devastating, and exalting way. You know when revival comes because of the work that the Spirit of God is doing upon his people. He's arresting them. He's devastating them under the weight of the glory of Christ. 
He's exalting Christ among them. It, it, Packer goes on to say, it is God accelerating and intensifying and extending the work of grace that goes on in the life of every Christian. And, and I think in particular, that last point is very important. Because Packer there makes the point that revival in itself is nothing more than the Lord drastically increasing the work of His grace in the lives of His people by increasing the effects of the means of grace. Common means of grace. So revival is not lights coming down out of heaven. Revival is not angel dust being sprinkled on your Bibles. Revival is not necessarily accompanied by signs, wonders, and miracles. And even if there are signs and wonders and miracles, that does not mean that it's a true work of the Spirit of God. We looked at that last week. A true work of the Spirit of God is a movement of the Holy Spirit through the common means of grace that quickens and inflames His people to new spiritual life. It's focused on the Word. It's focused on prayer. It's focused on holiness. It's focused on corporate fellowship in the body of Christ where you can't, you can't stay away from church anymore because you've got to be with the people of God. It's not a chore to come to church. It's not something where you wake up and you say, man, i got to get dressed. i got to get up. I'm losing these hours on my weekend so that I can go to church. Well, if that's your experience, you don't, you don't know the beauty and the glory of the life of the Spirit that is among His people, first of all. And secondly, you are not living in revival. Man, probably not even a Christian, if that's your attitude. Anyway, Sinclair Ferguson had a great quote. He said, revival is God using the ordinary means of grace in an extraordinary way. That's what revival is. It's God using the ordinary means of grace in an extraordinary way, in a way that God alone gets the glory and man gets none. So those were the first two considerations we looked at last week. Now, a third consideration that we should keep in mind as we seek to evaluate events like Asbury is that there will be certain characteristics that will manifest during times of true revival. You remember Jesus' wisdom whenever he was uh, uh, giving us uh, dis uh, discerning wisdom for how to test whether or not a person is a true or a false prophet. It says in Matthew 7, 16, you will know them by their fruits. Well, that same principle can be applied to situations like revival. How will you know if a revival is true or is truly taking place? Well, you will know whether a revival is taking place by the fruit that that revival is producing or that claimed revival is producing. So what are the fruits of revival? What should we be looking for as we evaluate claims to revival? Let me start off by saying that there are a number of them that I came across in my study on, of this topic, and I'm not going to mention all of them this morning. And, and also let me admit that none of the fruits that I'm going to mention and none of the discussion that I'm going to present to you here this morning are original to me. You can find these same discussions mentioned in John Owen and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones and others. But I do hope that after this morning, you, can, uh, you will also be able to say with a clear conscience that we can find these same fruits of revival 
represented in the word of God itself. So there are many fruits of revival, but this morning we're going to try to look at just five of them. Okay, Five of them. Five fruits or five signs of revival. Number one, revival brings an arresting awareness of the presence of God. Revival brings an arresting awareness of the presence of God. And by that, what I mean is an awareness of the nearness and the reality of God that causes everything else to fade into the background. In revival, God manifests his presence with such a a gripping force of reality that he actually comes to take center stage in the hearts and in the lives of those who are being revived. God's nearness has always been the desire of the believer's heart, right? This is Psalm 73, 28. What is my only good in this world? My only good is the nearness of God. And that's the Christian heart cry. Lord, I want you to be near. I want to know you in your glory. I want to be changed into your likeness. I want to walk in fellowship with you. That's the heart cry of the Christian. And in times of revival, that very cry of the heart of God's people is being uh, answered with tremendous power. God makes himself known. The scriptures often describe this experience of God's presence or his nearness as God's face or the light of his countenance shining upon his people. So, for example, in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 and 25, this this was the substance of the Aaronic blessing. So, so, So everything that Aaron was doing in his high priesthood was unto this end. That he might invoke the name of God upon the people and bless them by saying, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, I want to be clear about something. I heard a, a, a foolish very foolish commentary on revival, saying that revival should not be expected anymore today because the revivals in the Old Testament, we can't use them as illustrations for revival today because those revivals in the Old Testament were strictly focused on land promises and material blessings and health and wealth and whatnot. That is idiotic. Very obviously, this cry for blessing to be upon the people of God from Aaron is not focusing on temporal blessings like health and wealth and land. It's speaking of the blessing of experiencing the personal presence of God. Period. In all of Aaron's priestly duties, this was the consummate blessing that the high priest was seeking for the people of God. That God would be gracious to them by allowing them to experience the glory and the blessing of his personal presence. 
And what's fascinating to me is as you continue reading throughout Scripture, you find this very blessing of the face of God shining upon His people being uh, directly connected to the issue of revival. So, so that uh, God's face and, and His countenance being lifted up upon His people is being seen as a fruit or a result of what happens when God does bring revival. So, for example, Psalm 80, verses 18 through 19, it says uh, this plea of the psalmist, Revive us, and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. You see the connection there? It's a cry to be revived. It's a, it's a cry to be made alive all over again. A fresh experience of spiritual life with God. It's a cry for that blessing. But it comes, according to the psalmist, as God lifts up His face upon His people. It's the nearness of God that brings revival to the hearts of His people. Now, see, it's, it's scriptures like this that cause theologians of the past to mention this fruit as the first fruit that accompanies true revival. J.I. Packer, again, for example, he said that revival, and this is how he defined revival. Revi revival is the near presence of God giving new power to the truth of the gospel. It is the near presence of God where you're not, you're not having to convince yourself that God is actually there. You know God is there because God's making you know that he's there. The closest thing I've ever experienced to this was the day of my salvation where it was as if the presence of God encircled me like a tent. I didn't see lights. I didn't see anything obstructing my view of anything else. But it, the reality of God's nearness was so thick and palpable that I couldn't look beyond God to look at anything else. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he believed that the essence of revival is, quote, an immediate awareness of God's presence. It's an immediate awareness of God's presence. It's sudden. It's quick. It happens with force. It comes upon you at all of a sudden. To use the language of one who was at the Asbury Revival, all of a sudden the atmosphere changes. Daniel Rowland, right? We just watched in Sunday school in that documentary, Daniel Rowland, he described his experience of revival in the community where he labored as if the whole community was being swallowed up in God. Just, just enveloped in this holy presence of God drawing near to his people. Oh man, don't you long for that. Glory's coming, guys. Like, we're going to experience, that's what heaven is. It's not swinging on gates of pearl and, and walking around on streets of gold and having my mansion up in the skies, quote unquote. It's not about my crowns and my accolades and anything else that I've done to, 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 uh, to further the name of Christ and get reward for me. That's not what heaven and glory is all about. Glory is about God. It's about being with God. It's about loving God. It's about drawing near to God. It's about never having that moment. Never having a moment where his presence is not absolutely felt in your existence. Where sin is no longer that, that, it no longer puts that barrier and that degree of separation between you and your God. Where we're no longer living in the veil of the fallen creation all around us. Where we only get glimpses of the nearness of God like lightning flashing across the sky. We're changed by it. We see the glory, but it doesn't last here in this world. Heaven, in the new heavens and new earth, that's where it lasts. 
And all we're praying for when we're praying for revival is we're praying that God would bring those realities of heaven that one day we're all going to enjoy. And for a moment, just for a second, strike that glory into our hearts in the here and now. Let the lightning of heaven come into the darkness of this world and create fires of revival. Duncan Campbell, in the revival on the Isle of Lewis, he, just, he said that when revival came, it announced its arrival. It announced itself with, quote, an awareness of God that gripped the whole community. Those of you who saw the revival documentary this morning, you, you know how he was telling that. That there was, there was a power that people could not explain that caused them to get and understand the fact that they were hell-deserving sinners who needed to find the grace of God and they only knew of one place to go. And that was the church. There was no preacher that was standing outside their door calling for them to come to the church when that happened. It was the power of God descending upon those people. Something that could not be explained through human manipulation or effort. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a mystic here, okay? So those of you who are concerned, please throw that out the window. I'm not, I'm not delving into mysticism in an unbiblical sense. But if you don't understand the reality that there is mystery to your walk with the Lord, then you, don't, you have not walked very deeply with the Lord. So when God, when God draws, I'm not trying to be a mystic here, but when God draws near to you, you know it. Just like when another person draws near to you, you know that another person is there. Is God less powerful in his presence than that? Not when he chooses to be manifest. If you are a Christian, you have in some measure experienced the nearness of God before. It's impossible for you not to have experienced the nearness of God before because if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. See, the Christian hope is the hope of glory, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul rebukes the Corinthians by saying, don't you know this about yourselves, that Christ is in you? And that was for him a test of being a genuine Christian. Every true Christian knows something, some measure of what it's like to have the power and the presence of God in your life. And as a result of that, you know that very often we live with more of a sense of God's absence than with his nearness. See, the only way you can mourn the absence of God is if you know his nearness. This is part of the problem, right? In our day of Christianity, it's all, it's all falling. I mean, you know churches are closing left and right. Because there's no truth and substance in what's being given in those churches. It's all hype. It's all fluff. It's, it's, just, it's just leftovers from emotional uh, manipulation from decades ago. Part of the problem is that 
People today really don't know the nearness of God in a way that drives them to seek more of it. I want to be clear. God is never absent from his people. He promised that in Haggai chapter 2, verse 5, when, when the people of Israel, were re, uh, uh, of Judah, were returning from exile to the promised land, they didn't find much evidence of God's presence among them. They didn't feel that God was very present among them. Even the temple that they had rebuilt was not endowed with the same level of glory that the first temple had been endowed with. And yet the Lord speaks to his people in the midst of their confusion and in their questioning as to whether or not the Lord is among them. He speaks to them and he says, as I promised you when I brought you out of Egypt, my spirit is dwelling among you. Have hope. Take courage. Don't doubt me. I'm with you. Psalm 139, 7 through 8, right? I mean, that's a general principle. There is, there is literally nowhere that we can go where we can escape God's presence. If, if we ascend into the heavens, the Lord is there. If we, if we descend to the depths of hell, the Lord is there. You cannot escape the presence of God. So I'm not saying that any Christian is ever without God's presence. But in times of revival, God manifests His presence among His people in an unusual way, in an unusual way that allows them to sense His nearness. This is what... Uh, um, uh, A.W. Tozer was writing about in his book, uh, The Pursuit of God. I think it's in chapter 4, where he talks about uh, when we're praying for the nearness of God, we're not praying for God to move locations. We're not praying for God to, to move from, from heaven to come down to earth. What we're praying for is for God to awaken our senses to his nearness because God is everywhere all the time. In times of revival, the Lord awakens the senses of his people so that they know his nearness in a very special and unusual way, in a way that the world does not know. And, and <laughs> to add a level of argument to that, in times of revival, the Lord even awakens his people to the reality of his nearness. He, he manifests and, and allows his, his presence to be sensed with such power 1 Corinthians 14.25 tells us that even unbelievers are left confessing, surely God is among you. When that is manifesting among a people, then we can be confident that there is genuine revival taking place. Number two. With that arresting awareness of God's presence comes, secondly, a penetrating awareness of and grief over sin. With an awakened awareness of God's nearness and, and, and feeling, in some sense, the weight of his glory upon our own souls, there comes with uh, the holy God drawing near to us a realization of how unholy we are. We become aware of our sin. Where there is not a greater aware, awareness and brokenness over sin, there has not been a greater awareness of God. To put that a different way, if, 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 
If you have not been awakened to God's reality in such a way that you are loathing yourself because of your sins. That's Ezekiel 36. You are loathing yourself because of your sins. You are mourning because now that you love God, you are mourning over what you were doing against God. Your heart is filled with grief and sorrow and pain at the thought of hurting one so glorious and so lovely as God. If that hasn't happened, God has not drawn near to you. At least not in revival. This is an automatic response when a sinner is exposed to a greater realization of the nearness of God. And let me give just a couple of illustrations of that from the scriptures. Like Job, Job 42, 5 through 6. Job said, after his dealings with God, after the Lord had shown up to address Job personally, Job said, I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. In other words, Job's awareness of the Lord's presence and reality was so much greater than it was that he can only compare the difference as being the difference between hearing about something and actually seeing something for himself. And how did Job famously respond in that time. He said, now that I see you, I've only heard of you before, but now that I see you, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. We find the same response in Isaiah, don't we? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Isaiah, probably among the holiest men of the people of God in his time. Once he was granted the blessing of seeing God in his glory. And don't don't ever go to Isaiah chapter 6 without realizing that what Isaiah is seeing in that moment is the glory of God the Son. John 12. When Isaiah is awakened to see the manifestation of the invisible God in the glorious presentation of the Son, Isaiah's only response is to have a greater understanding of his own unworthiness in the Lord's presence and then to pronounce a curse upon himself, saying, woe is me, I am undone. This is is why there will be no boasting in the presence of God from any sinner. This is why the the most uh, God-hating, vitriol-filled atheist on the day when he or she stands before the Lord, there will be no quibbing with God. There will be an automatic response of humility and brokenness before him. There will be the bowing of the knee. There will be the automatic confession of the tongue in the presence of the Lord because the glory of God's presence will be so imposing, so overwhelming. In a very similar way, not not exactly the same, But in a very similar way to Job and Isaiah, during times of revival, the people of God experience a more devastating awareness of their sin. So revival is not just about rapturous experiences of God's glory. It is also about a holy brokenness, 
a mourning over what we are and what we have done as we gain a greater and deeper perception of God in his great glory. Now again, anyone who has the Spirit of God dwelling in them knows some measure of what this is like. Because this is the work of the Spirit of the Lord. When, when, when Jesus received the promise from the Father and sent forth that promise upon the church and into the world, it says in John 16, 8, that when that happened, the Spirit would come to convict the world of sin and to convict the world of righteousness and to convict the world of judgment. That is the Spirit's work. And any time that the Holy Spirit brings anyone to saving faith in Jesus, this is where it starts. Understanding the reality of God, understanding the reality of what Jesus Christ has done to save sinners, and then understanding the reality of what it means to be a sinner in God's presence, to be convicted of that. In other words, to be convinced of it. Where you are brought to, to, to the point of John, 1 John 1, 1.9, you are brought to the point of confessing your sins to the Lord in hope that he will forgive you and cleanse you from it. That is the normal work, the normal function of the Spirit of God, and every true believer knows what that work is like. But in times of revival, that work of the Spirit is amplified beyond measure leading to a heightened and enlarged sensitivity to sin, which then leads to a fuller confession before the Lord of sin, which then leads to a deeper repentance of sin before the Lord. Where that is happening, there is revival happening. We won't have time today to finish all of this, but number three, and probably the most important sign of true revival. The most important sign of true revival. The preciousness of the preciousness of Christ and the glory of his saving work becomes utterly captivating. Wherever the, Spirit, wherever the Holy Spirit is moving among a people, that people will find themselves more and more captivated by the glory of Christ. Because that is what the Holy Spirit was sent into this world to do. To glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. You see this in John 15 verse 26 where Jesus says, When the, Holy, when the Helper, when the Holy Spirit comes whom I will send to you from the Father, he will testify of me. If that's the work of the Spirit, and revival is an amplification of the normal work of the Spirit, then in times of revival, we can expect to hear and see and receive very much testimony going on about the glory of Jesus. It won't be about a man. It won't be about how many came down forward and prayed a prayer at his last meeting. It won't be about tent revivals and working things up and finneyism and emotionalism. It won't be about Bethel Redding songs. It won't be about IHOP. It won't be about any of that nonsense. It will be about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ will be enough to melt the hearts of his people. In that testimony, John 16, 14, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, 
He will glorify me. The Spirit will glorify Jesus. Not just give you a mental understanding of Jesus, but He will glorify Christ in your heart so that you're melted with the beauty of Jesus Christ and you're melted with the power of what He's done. You see yourself as a sinner in the presence of God and all of a sudden you see the work that Jesus has done on the cross so gloriously magnified that you can't do anything other than run to Him. You can only run to the cross and you pray, Lord, keep me near the cross. Keep me near the cross. Keep me near Jesus Christ. Keep me close to you, shepherd. Lord, like a shepherd, lead me. When the Spirit is working, Christ is glorified. And I know you Minnesotans probably got really uncomfortable with what just happened. Get over it. Just get over it. I guarantee you on the day when I see my Savior, I'm going to be more undignified than that. When the Spirit is working, Christ is glorified among His people. So that, all right. So that the preacher doesn't have to say to the people... Hey guys, when we get together in our care groups or when we have potluck luncheons or fifth Sunday smorgasbords, you know, wouldn't it be great if we all just kind of wanted to talk about Jesus? I mean, I don't want you to talk about him too much. I, I know that we've already been through church and you've listened to me hound you for an hour. I, I get that. I, I know that you've been in the Word all week and you've come to prayer meetings, some of you. If it's not too much, Maybe it would be good if you just carved out a few minutes to talk about the glory of Jesus that you've been seeing in the week prior. You know why we have nothing to share? We know why we don't want to do that. It's because we have nothing to share. Why do we have nothing to share? Because we're not seeing the glory of Jesus throughout the week. We're distracted. I hope my train tracks veer in the direction I want to go right now. But if they don't, we'll crash together. (laughs) You know, when revival comes, it's messy. When the Lord actually moves to revive His people, the church is not left in the status quo. So, like, it gets uncomfortable. And... There's new life and there's new growth in the church and and those who maybe have been there longer and and are now seeing all kinds of change take place, they get a little, uh, it's a little disconcerting, right? Maybe like uh, Duncan Campbell, you you arrive and you have a meeting an hour before dinner and you think, okay, I'm going to go preach and then I'm going to go get my dinner and you actually don't wind up eating your next meal for two days. Because revival has disrupted the whole community and, and, and just taken your agenda and tossed it out the window. You know, you can keep a graveyard pretty neat and clean. And there's really not a whole lot of disruption that happens in a graveyard. 
But when the Spirit of God brings people to new life, all of a sudden they seem radical. They, they seem threatening. They seem uh, unstable to many people. So much so that you won't ordain them and the only place they can find to preach in the whole city is on their own father's tombstone. Right? But in revival, the fruit will always be focused and directed upon Jesus Christ. So... The Spirit's work, His normal work, is to testify to Christ in such a way that Christ is glorified among His people. I'm not going to run that one. Therefore, when the church experiences the blessing of God, granting them a greater fullness of His Spirit, the Spirit's work of glorifying Christ will be enlarged in their hearts. And I I just want to say every single period of revival in the history of God's people, especially in the history of the New Covenant Church, has proven that to be true. As Richard Sibbs, a Puritan, once wrote, he said, those ages wherein the Spirit of God is most are those ages where Christ is most preached. (laughs) Boy, we... I get these emails of 10 proven strategies to to grow your church, um, and not a single one of them is do deeper exegesis. Preach more fully about Jesus Christ from the scriptures. Uh, Extend your sermons 15 minutes longer so that you can explain more about the truth of Christ to the people. There's not a single one of them that says that. I say, get a skilled player, get a skilled musician on the piano which we do have one. Thank you, James. I don't know where you are. There you are. Thank you. Get, uh, get rid of the suit coat. Uh, get rid of the pulpit. Just sit on a stool and kind of talk to everybody like your buddy-buddy with them. You're chumming. Yeah, I'm sorry. Like that's, that's not what happens when the Lord brings revival. When the Lord brings revival, there is a radical focus that is zeroed in upon Jesus Christ. We'll we'll end here and we'll come to the table. But Christ is the atmosphere of true revival. In, uh, in, In true revival, the spiritual air becomes thick with Jesus. And sinners are unavoidably confronted by him. Sinners have nowhere to go. There's, there's, not a way to, there's not a place to hide. They can't just run out of the building. They have to come face to face with Jesus, the living Christ. Not Jesus the idea. Not Jesus of the preacher. Not the Jesus of modern Christianity. But the living Lord Jesus Christ who reigns on his throne in times of revival. Sinners are confronted with that reality. And they are drawn to him. That's right. That's right. So here's my next point, brother. Sinners are unavoidably confronted by him. And they all rejoice in the freedom of bowing down before him. So in times of revival... The facts about Jesus and the meaning of those facts take deeper root 
in the hearts of the people and produce a more zealous and fruitful worship of him. So, for example, the virgin birth of Christ becomes the doorway to seeing the glory of our heavenly birth of the Spirit. His life of righteousness is freshly received as our gift of righteousness before the Father and all of our confidence to stand before him. Where Jesus' death on our behalf liberates us with fresh power from our natural fear of death. Where we are no longer afraid to come to the Lord in death because we now have discovered that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And we now have birthed within us by the Spirit of God this holy, passionate desire no longer to be departing, departed from the Lord and at home in the body. We would much rather now be departing from the body and be at home with the Lord. Today, we're all afraid to die. I have not yet, and I'm not trying to accuse anybody, I haven't yet met a Christian who was able, I want to put that little qualifier in there, maybe some were not able to do this, but I have yet to meet a Christian on his or her deathbed glorying in the fact that they are about to go home and be with Christ. Uh, that's not the consideration that I hear from most people when we start talking about disease and death and struggles with life. I don't hear much talking about Jesus Christ. Isn't that a problem? Jesus came. Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh so that he would destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and liberate those who through fear of death were held captive all their lives. The Spirit of God brings freedom from the fear of death through what Christ Jesus has done. So, in times of revival especially, the death of Christ on our behalf liberates us with even greater power, with a fresh power from our natural fear of death. The might of his resurrection from the dead, his conquering of our sin and his conquering of death and hell, it begins to work with fresh conquering power in our own lives. Temptation loses its power. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. The glory of his ascension on high gives greater sincerity to our confession of his lordship and our allegiance to him as king over all kings and lord over all lords. And it gives us backbone to stand against tyrants who would seek to take the place of God. Now that's why the nation of America was birthed out of a revival. You enjoy your freedoms in America? Everybody gives thanks to God for the freedoms in America, but not very many people think about how those freedoms were preserved and what they were birthed out of in our society. They were birthed out of a revival, the Great Awakening. Revival brings a greater sense of confidence in the greatness of Christ's love and the fullness of his grace and that he is always approachable as our gentle and lowly shepherd. 
In times of revival, there is a sweet attachment to the Lord Jesus Christ. It fills the hearts of God's people with a more eager expectation of the day when we will see the blessed hope of His appearing. Titus 2. These are all the truths. These are all truths that every Christian holds onto and every Christian believes in. But in times of revival, the power and the reality and the effect of those truths is drastically increased in the hearts of those who are being revived. As Jonathan Edwards wrote regarding what he observed of the Holy Spirit in the Great Awakening, he said that when the Great Awakening began to happen, the result was a raised esteem for Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, it was an admiring and delightful sense of the excellencies of Jesus. So it's not just increased mental conceptions and theoretical speculations about what Jesus has done to save sinners, but there's this increased affectionate attraction to Christ where you now love Him though you have not seen Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. That is probably the most important sign that will accompany a true revival. People will be making much of Christ. They will be a people whose hearts and minds and affections are summed up in Christ. As the Holy Spirit magnifies the greatness of Jesus before them. So we're going to end there today, and we'll come back to this next week. Um, but I do pray that as we consider in these series on what revival is, we're trying to think through what it is, I hope that your own heart is being stirred to pray and seek the Lord for a reviving of his people. Normal Christianity has to Normal Christianity is explosive and it's powerful. Read the book of Acts. That's normal Christianity. We're living, we're living in subnormal Christianity. Our experience of Christ is subscriptural. I hope that you are encouraged to seek the Lord, to seek His presence continually as we seek Him to revive and awaken His people. Father, we can't make this happen, and we don't want to make this happen. Lord, there's nothing in us that can produce true and lasting revival or a true, lasting awakening of your spirit. But Lord, I do pray that you would work for the glory of your name, that you would exalt Jesus Christ among us, and that you would do it in such a way that no man gets the glory, and that you would be exalted in the beauty of your holiness before this world. Lord, we pray, we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. James 4.8 gives us a promise, an exhortation and a promise. It says, uh, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So we're exhorted, we're commanded, draw near to God. We're promised that if we will, 
he will draw near to us. This is Zechariah 1.3. Draw near to me so that I can draw near to you, the Lord says. And we have the promise of 2 Chronicles 15.2. I am with you, the Lord is with you, while you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. It's the joy of the Lord to unveil his glory before those who are seeking after it. As this morning the documentary on revival said, the Lord is pleased to answer the cravings or the the desires of those who are crying out for more of his glory. He's, He's birthed within them a desire to see more of his glory, and the Lord will be happy to answer that desire. On what basis do we have any confidence to believe that we can draw near to the Lord or that the Lord would be willing to draw near to us? That's right here at this table represented by the elements, isn't it? Because the bread representing the body of our Lord Jesus Christ broken for sinners like us, it represents our Lord going to the cross bearing in his body our sins so that he might bring us to God without our sins, right? It's, it's Jesus guaranteeing our access to the Father by taking away every reason we should be barred from the Father's presence. We have his blood, the, the spilling of his life on our behalf. There's a guarantee that any time we, pro- we approach the living God, we can find him postured towards us with open arms, ready to receive us, ready to welcome us in grace and embrace us in fellowship. What what guarantees that? It's the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus that seals the promise of the new covenant and guarantees that hope for any sinner who will come. This table is is a means of remembering the basis on which we stand in relation to God. We, we stand in a realm of grace, and that grace is secured for us through the body and blood of Christ Jesus, the Lord suffering on our behalf, and praise God rising again in victory from the dead.